This is week number three as we've been talking about the book of Ruth. And uh, I get to share. I'm, I'm going to take us into uh, chapter two, verses um, one through 14. Uh, and I'm just going to I'm kind of sprinkle some different ideas at you and kind of just give you some things and hopefully uh, interject some encouragement, some faith. Um, and then also challenge you and, and pour in. So uh, let me tell you this. What I discovered and what I feel like the goal of today's message is simply this, is you're going to see that every major setback in the lives of Ruth and Naomi, that God had a setup, had a step up, had an improvement, had an advancement. Every time in the, in the, I want to call it the gospel of Ruth. There's been multiple times I've almost said the gospel of Ruth in my head because and, and when, when, we, when you get through the entirety of uh, this book, you're going to see it, it fits every picture. Uh, so many pictures in the book of Ruth are reflections and are pictures of Jesus himself. The idea of redemption and God's kindness and going uh, to people who uh, you have no business going to and loving people that seem unlovable and, and going the extra mile and sacrificial everything. All these elements show up in the ministry and the life of Jesus in all four gospels. So if I slip and say gospel of Ruth, that's why, because uh, so much of it is uh, Christ centered. So we're going to see that all these times that there's a step back, every time there's a hindrance, every time there's a pain point, the Lord had a plan in the midst of it all to set up Ruth, to set up Naomi, to set up Boaz, to set up all of Israel for that matter. I'm going to read a couple of verses to you. Then I want to show you, show you something. Let's go back and recap Ruth chapter one, verse one. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Important to know. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Uh, let's, I think I have the wrong order, um, Gabe, but let's go to the map. So I have these maps that I want to show. We'll do the first one. Boom. All right, here we go. There it is. There's Elimelech. Naomi, there are two sons. I actually knew a guy named Malin, um, which is really funny because every time I read this, I think of him. Um, uh, he went to, well, well, Silas High School, now Silas Dunn Wilson. Uh, but there they are, chilling in Bethlehem. Bethlehem's called the house of bread. That's what the word Bethlehem means, okay? Doing it. And then there was a famine, famine in the house of bread. And so they moved. Next slide. Boop. There we go. Look at that. <laughs> this is my visual learners. My wife's a preschool teacher, right? So I got to have fun with it, right? So the family moved from Bethlehem to Moab. While they were in Moab, the sons found wives. Boom. <laughs> there was a famine, pain. They moved, got to Moab, found wives. There was more pain. The sons died. And the, and the father, excuse me. And it was just down to Ruth. I always want to say Oprah. See, we, my, in my life group. Here's a, a plug to go to life group. Uh, plug to go to life group in my life group. Um, if, has anybody else been reading Ruth as we've been going through it? When you see her name, don't you say Oprah, right? I just, like, I can't not say it. Oh, or, or, Harpo, moving on. Um, this is, you'll, you'll get it eventually. Oprah backwards, it's her thing. Whatever. And then next slide. It was just Ruth and just Naomi. They go back to Bethlehem. Picks up for our next verse, Ruth chapter one, verse 22. So Naomi returned 
from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law. Arriving in Bethlehem as the barley season, as the barley harvest was beginning. That, let's go back to that last map. That distance from Moab, modern day Jordan, that's the Dead Sea there in the middle. That travel, that trek was 70 to 100 miles. Probably took the family about a week to make. You got to think there's so many different dynamics here at play. Number one dynamic is just the travel itself. Um, originally, I'm from Bronx, New York. Hey, yo, you know what I'm saying? Hey, mother, quarter, water, order, all that stuff. I can start talking like this. You would understand. <laughs> and just the dynamics of moving require change or, or our, uh, pain points. Some of the pain points are obvious. Some are less obvious. Can I tell you one of the, what I originally was less obvious, but I realized in my life was quite obvious is um, the lingo and the slang of living in one community to the next is, is a big deal. I don't know what the lingo and slang of Moab and Bethlehem were back then, but I know the lingo and the slang of East Coast 20th, 21st century United States of America and West Coast 20th and 21st century United States of America are a big deal. I learned that because still to this day, 41 years old, I don't call soda pop, I call it soda. <laughs> Who here calls soda pop? Raise your hand. Okay, I have discovered that this can be a very divisive situation. <laughs> to me, as a boy, a young man, an adult who's lived and raised in the East Coast for the first third or so of his life, I call it soda. And when I moved here to Washington, I discovered they call it pop. <laughs> what, is, what is that? And then if you run and run and throw a curveball and says, if you're from the South, you call it Coke. Who are my friends here from the South? You call it Coke. Everything's Coke. Oh, can I get a ginger ale Coke? Can I get a Sprite Coke? What is that? <laughs> Traveling's a big deal. Whether it's your lingo and your slang, or whether it's your culture and your race, your religion, your work ethic, your ideologies, your principles, or in this time being two women who left Moab and went back to Bethlehem. If you know something about the system of these days, you've got a caste system where things are, uh, or something like caste, if you have a patriarchal system, in some ways those function as a caste system in some ways. You've got a patriarchal system where now you have two women with no covering, no husband, no father, and they're now by themselves. And they made the trek. Can you imagine how dangerous that was for these two women? 100 miles from Moab to Bethlehem. If you were here when we talked about it last week, Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, she said, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara, which means bitter. She was just a bitter woman. That's not, a, not throwing stones. That's what she said. She said, the Lord has dealt harshly with me. And I think it's fascinating that when we move and we travel, it's a game changer. And one of the things I noticed, it's at this moment also, something happens in scripture. In chapter one, verse 22, we'll put that verse back on the screen. Something stood out to me. It says this. It says, so Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth, the Moabite. Ruth, the Moabite. Ruth's name is mentioned in this book 21 times. Five times of those 21, or let me make sure I have that right, because it was 25 or 26. Excuse me, it's 26 times. 
and, and five times, so 21 times, five times, plus to get, add together, that's 26, boom, whoever got it right. Her name's mentioned 26 times in scripture. Five of those 26 times, she's called Ruth the Moabite. The other 21 times, she's called Ruth. No big deal, whatever. But I find it fascinating that she wasn't referred to as Ruth the Moabite until she showed up in Bethlehem. Like Eddie, who's the kid from Bronx, New York. Oh, Eddie, that's the kid from New York. Oh, Ruth. That's the woman from Moabite. Yeah, her, her mother-in-law, Naomi, yeah, her story's pretty rough. And then there's Ruth the Moabite. She's the outsider. She's the one who doesn't quite fit in. She got a different, different slang, different accent. You know, she curls her hair a different way than we do over here in Bethlehem and Jerusalem. You know what I mean? You know, she's Becky with the good hair. I don't know what you want to call her. <laughs> Five times. Let's put up this slide. Five times. And it's not until she shows up in Bethlehem. Now, there's times she's in Bethlehem, she's just referred to as Ruth. But I found it fascinating that when she shows up in Bethlehem, Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the Moabite. The only time she gets singled out is when she's in Bethlehem. If you got to understand the history of the Moabites and the Israelites, you see the Moabites were the descendants of Lot. Who's Lot? Lot is the nephew of Abraham. Who's Abraham, you may ask? Abraham's the father of all of Israel. Right. Father Abraham, he had many sons, many sons and father Abraham. When he was walking into the promised land of what God had for him, he had a choice. And, 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 and you can read in, in Genesis, he, uh, the, 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 the word says he, they came to a fork in the road. And he and his servants and his crew and his nephew Lot's servants, his crew were so big that they couldn't take, they couldn't all live on the same land. So they decided, hey, I'm going to go one way, you go the other. So Lot or Abraham said to Lot, his nephew, he said, hey, which direction do you want to go? Do you want to go up here to the rough, high country, hill country, rougher road? And Lot said, nah, G, I'm going to take the easy, cool, smooth path downhill down that direction. And then the Bible goes on to tell us in Genesis 19 that Lot, you can read the rest of his story, went on to be the father of two nations, the Moabites and the Ammonites. And those were two of the biggest nations that were against Israel in these days. And because they were essentially cousins, Israelites and the Moabites, and there's hostility between the two groups because of how they chose to worship, the gods the Moabites chose to worship, the fact that they were harsh towards Israel, it was persona non grata. Line you don't cross. That's, that's the wrong side of the tracks, 100 miles around the corner in that way. We don't go there. We don't deal with them in the way they do their hair. We don't deal with them and the gods that they pray to. And if they come over here to our side of the tracks, we're always going to label them. Yeah, there's Ruth the Moabite. I don't know if all of this was done out of shame and pointing the finger and throwing stones, but some of it sure was. Some of it could have been done out of pity. You've got two women who have nothing according to their system. They have nothing. I don't know if it was maybe Naomi's old friends and family looking back at her and said, you left here and you came back with one of them. I don't know. But I just think it's fascinating that when Ruth and Naomi show up in Bethlehem, it's Ruth the Moabite. She gets painted with a brush. So much pain. We already know, like we said a minute ago, 
Naomi already feels that the Lord has rejected her, that she's bitter. And they're getting painted with a brush. I remember being uh, in eighth grade. Um, I, I lived in Washington for a little while. And uh, uh, in eighth grade, uh, for those of you who are sports fans, you're going to know where I'm going with this. It was uh, 1995. Okay? If, if that's before your time, chill out and enjoy the ride. <laughs> If that's in your wheel of, time, wheel of time, if that's in your time frame, if I lived in Seattle, Washington in 1995, and 1995, whatever that was, in the fall of 1995, what happened? You went back to school. The Mariners. The Mariners <laughs> refused to lose. In 1995, let me take you back to a one-game playoff between the Seattle Mariners, Randy Johnson, Edgar Martinez, Jay Buhner, Ken Griffey Jr., the kid, against, in the kingdom, against my no. New York Yankees. <laughs> the Yankees lost that game. Griffey slid. It's a pitcher. How many of you remember that day? You remember that? Uh, I went to school the next day at Hutloff Middle School, right around the corner from here, and got teased. <laughs> for being a kid from New York. I still have my accent. They're like, ah, oh, we beat you. Ah, oh, no, 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 we beat you. Your team stinks. Ah. I got teased by all my friends. I didn't just get teased by all my friends. I got teased by my vice principal, Mr. Kim Isaacson. Yes, I still remember his name. Y'all don't know this trauma is real, y'all. remember sitting in the lunchroom at the old Hutloff building, getting teased. I get made fun of because I'm the kid from New York and my team lost. Now, in my end, on the sports side of things, the next 30 years of my life have done pretty well. <laughs> if I do say so myself. Yankees have won how many championships? Can't count that high. Can someone can, make sure this gets on camera? Yeah. <laughs> Mariners have won how many? No big deal. Not, not, nothing personal. Nothing personal. Just saying. Just tell you what's in the scripture and what's in the record book. <laughs> Ruth the Moabite. I told you earlier that I think every single time that there's a setback, the Lord has a setup. We're going to get into that in a second. But let's keep reading in Ruth chapter 2. You're going to start to see how the Lord takes every single moment and redeems it. Ruth chapter 2 verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's side, on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. So this is Ruth's husband's uh, family member. And Ruth, or excuse me, this is Naomi's husband's, uh, fa husband's family member. His name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let us go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain Behind anyone who see whose eyes I find faith, whose eyes I find favor, find favor in their eyes. Naomi said to her, "Go ahead, my daughter." So she went out and entered the field and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working on the field belonging to Boaz, whom was from the clan Elimelech. Just as Boaz arrived, there's some theologians here where it says she just so happened. Yeah. <laughs> is actually 
a statement about the providence of God. The woman doesn't fit. Just so happened to show up at the right place at the right time for the one man who could change her life. Why is that? Because we told you that Boaz is a family member or a kinsman redeemer or a guardian redeemer. There's a few different ways it's translated depending on your Bible you're reading. But the idea here is we said earlier that these two women, they have nothing according to the societal structure. The men who are there covering are gone. So back in these days, uh, the, if, if you were in that place, you're a woman who had lost your husband, had lost your father, you could actually marry, you could be uh, attached to, be a part of your husband's brother's family to take care of you or your uncles or something like that as a way to protect you from being abused, taken advantage of, being impoverished. And here's a man who shows up and here's the beautiful part. It just so happened that the man who show up, who is Boaz? The Bible says he's a man of good standing, moral, godly, faithful. A man who observes the word of the Lord, who honors the Lord and honors his people. I told my life group when we were sitting on Thursday, I said, when you're reading through the book of Ruth, it's very cinematic. It's very beautiful. It, it, you can easily translate and transport yourself into a beautiful blockbuster movie. And I can almost see I don't know if it's, uh, I'm, uh, I'm a, a, a war combat fighting movie fan, so immediately my brain goes to Gladiator. <laughs> Come on now. When um, Russell Crowe's character, I'm blanking on his name right now, I, I, I don't know why it's not coming to me. Yes, Maximus. And he's walking, he's going, walking through the grain fields, has the vision. That's how I picture Boaz, walking through the grain fields. Man of God. Humble, secure, put together, honoring and loving the Lord. And it just so happens that the woman who has nothing, just so happens, shows up and sees him. The man from Bethlehem, another man from Bethlehem, redeems the woman who doesn't fit. Redeems the woman who's an outsider. A man of this land restores a woman who has no business being here, according to every plan, worldly point of view, and system. Verse 5, Boaz, in his harvesting fields, goes to his overseer of the harvest and says, Who does th is that young woman? Who does that young woman belong to? The overseer is replying, She is the Moabite. She's come from back from Moab with Naomi, your family member. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves uh, behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained there from morning until now, except for a short time when she took a break, when she took some rest. Here's the next thing you've got to understand. Ruth and Naomi understand this. The workers in the field understand this. Boaz understands this, that there is a law of the land, not a law of the land determined by human construction, where you had to go to a voting booth, punch in your card and check a box. Yes, we should always do that. But a law of the land as delivered from the mouth of the Lord himself that said, I've got a plan when there are people in your land who don't fit, when there are outsiders amongst you, insiders, mm -hmm. 
you need to make sure they're taken care of and they are allowed to glean. Matter of fact, let me just read it for you. I'm gonna give you two scriptures. Leviticus 19. When you reap your harvest, you own your land, you reap your harvest. You are not to reap the very edge of the field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not strip your vineyards bare or gather the fallen grapes. Leave them for the poor and the resident alien for I am the Lord. This is the Lord himself. This ain't nobody voting in a voting box. This isn't one of the judges who was not doing what they needed to do or did do what they needed to do, whatever. Deuteronomy 24, again, when you reap your harvest in your field and you forget the sheaf in your field, don't go back and get it. It is to be left for the resident alien, the fatherless, the widow. But the Lord, your God, may bless you in all of your hands. When you knock down the fruit from your olive tree, do not go over the branches again. What remains will be for the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, do not glean what is left. What remains will be for the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow. When, I think when God repeats himself, I think it's kind of a big deal. <laughs> Remember that you were once a slave. Therefore, I am commanding you to do this. The Lord makes it clear that when you're the insider and you're in the position of the favored child, the chosen nation, the people that God has blessed, he says this. He says, don't take it all. Don't go back for your miss, what you missed. Do leave room for others and you will keep being blessed. Overly simplified version. Don't take it all. Don't go back for what you missed. Do leave some for others and you will be blessed. There was a, clearly there was a, the Bible talks about this idea of the ancient boundary stone. We're not going to get into it, but, but that oftentimes delineated the, the space that if anything blew over, if anything fell over, if anything was left, there was these lines that you just could not cross. But God, I own the land. But God, those are my harvest. But God, that's my property. And God says, but yes, remember, you were once an outsider and didn't fit. And I brought you into my family. So you need to make sure other outsiders who don't fit, who don't have a family, this was Israel's welfare system appointed by God. This wasn't beautiful work. This wasn't a reward. This was humbling. And quite frankly, even for Naomi, if you imagine for Naomi, who her family had a reputation and, 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 and probably had uh, some good standing in Bethlehem once upon a time. And now she's back poor with her daughter-in-law with nothing. And the only way she will survive is out of the kindness of the Lord first and the willingness of someone who owns the land that will obey the word of the Lord. We all know godly people ain't always obeying the word of the Lord. There were some people back in this day that they didn't always adhere to this. You can see that when you read in scripture, there was potential danger for Naomi. What if other Workers decided, hey, I want to go back and get a little something, something for myself. And she's confronted with these men. Or for Ruth, excuse me. The reality is, is that every single time there's a need, the Lord has a setup for the outsider 
He just so happens to fall into the land that belongs to the one person who can redeem you. For the person who has nothing, the Lord says, well, don't worry. Generations ago, I decided that you would have access to something. Every single time. There's a setback. The Lord has a setup. Verse 8. Give me a second, please. Verse 8. So Boaz. Yeah. So Boaz said to Ruth. I want to pause here for a second. This blew my mind away. The first interaction that Boaz and Ruth have, it's not Boaz said to Ruth the Moabite. There's a few people, there's, um, some people believe Samuel is the one who wrote this. But it just fascinates me that the narrator, and maybe I'm thinking too much of it, I'm not going to build a whole, a whole of theology on this, but it just fascinates me that right here in this moment, when Boaz meets Ruth and talks to her for the first time, he says, Ruth, he goes to Ruth and says, daughter. There's no framing of who, who she is or where she comes from, some painted on identity, some separate identity that puts a wall between him and her. He just comes to her and says, Ruth, my daughter. Listen to me. Don't go and glean another field. Don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the fields where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. I said a little bit ago that safety is an issue here. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground and said and asked him, why have you found such favor? Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me a foreigner? It's beautiful that we think of this and we look at this is that Ruth is no longer just a Moabite. And it's because Boab steps in and treats her, not like an outsider, but as a daughter. Not as a poor person who's just gleaning the fields, who's in danger from the attack of men, but invites her in and says, hey, my hired men, hey, the ones I pay, you need, when you need something to drink, you need a little snack, you need to take a break, hey, you go tell them that I said you can go to them and get a drink of water. He didn't have to do that. I read through it a couple more times. It's not in Deuteronomy. It's not in Leviticus. Oh, give the person gleaning your fields a drink of water. Oh, hey, when you're paying your men to do your job, tell them to take a break and make sure they look after this woman. Boaz goes above and beyond for the outsider. To the point where Ruth says, why have I found favor in your eyes? I'm reminded of um, one of a beautiful, beautiful verse in Genesis, Genesis 16, I believe. I lost my reference. It's in there somewhere. I'll find it. 
with Abraham, his servant, Hagar, she is abused. She gets kicked out by Sarah and she's living on her own out in the fields with her son, Abraham's son. And she feels like she's got nothing. She feels like she's just ready to die and give up. And she says, because the angel of the Lord appears to her. I want to read it. Here we go. There it is. Genesis 16, 13, 14. This woman who has a son, you give the context. I didn't want to go into full detail, but I have to now because you see to make sure it makes sense. Abraham, the same one we mentioned, whose nephew was Lot. Nephew Lot, father of the Moabites. Abraham, the father of Israel. Abraham couldn't, and his wife Sarah couldn't conceive. He said, hey, Sarah said, why don't you take one of our servants, conceive with her. This will be our son. Okay. Ended up not being God's plan. Didn't quite work out. Sarah dismisses the servant. She feels like she has nothing and she's out in the fields by herself, her and her little son. And the Lord shows up to her and she says, you are the God who sees me. When I had nothing, when I'm on my own, when I got disowned, when I got kicked out, when I was on the wrong side of the tracks, when everyone abandoned me, when everyone left me, you are the God who sees me. And that's what this woman said about the Lord God. And I feel like when I read the story in Ruth, I feel like that's the exact same way she felt when she saw Boaz take notice of her. You see me. Why, why do you see me? And no one else here sees me. They label me as Ruth the Moabite, but you see me. It just reminded me that I think we're supposed to see who the Lord sees, and I think we're supposed to see people how the Lord sees them. Yeah. Like, I got a way of seeing people that, yo, y'all don't want to get up in this head. It ain't pretty. It ain't pretty. I can say some things about some people, okay? I'm going to keep it a buck with you, all right? I can think some things about some people. But man, I'm always wrestling. Lord, help me see people the way you see them. Help me see them how you see them. Help me just even see the people that nobody else sees that you see. Help me, Lord. I'm, I'm guilty. I'm not saying this from a position of reached uh, a status like I've reached this position. But you see me, a foreigner. And Boaz goes the extra mile. We'll finish up here. I'll come up, Jason. I never gave you a cue earlier. So we'll come up here. Last chunk of scripture. Verse 11 through 14. Ruth says, How, why do you notice me a foreigner? And Boaz replied, I've been told about you. What you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and your mother and your homeland, and you came to a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come back to take refuge. We'll pause there. I know you. I've heard your story. I see you. Because not because I'm the brightest or sharpest or the, the, the brightest bulb or the sharpest tool, but I see you because I heard your story. And clearly, the Lord has been with you. And I don't know if you know this or not, but in chapter one, 
Ruth goes to Naomi and says, your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. Where you live, I will live. Where you die, I will die. I am loyal to you. Ruth makes a declaration. I believe a declaration of faith. Because the reality is when she married Naomi's son, she didn't just marry and put a ring on it. She married into the family and she married into the family that said, Jehovah, Yahweh is our God. So she knew that even though she was an outsider, when she said yes to her husband and she said yes to Naomi, she's like, I'm saying yes to your family. I'm saying yes to your people and I'm saying yes to your God. And even though everyone looked at her as an outsider and painted her with a brush, so that's just Ruth from Moabite. She's like, really, I'm one of you. I know the God you know. I love the people you love. Then it took Boaz, the redeemer of her family, who said, I know not everyone else knows this about you, but I have heard and I have seen it. And I'm aware. And because of that, I'm just going to let you know, you've got an open invitation. You've got a blank check. You've got a welcome mat plopped down in front of you. So you can come on in. Because that's the way we're supposed to be. That's who my God is. He sees those who no one else sees. He loves those who no one else loves. He plans and has structure to redeem everyone, whether they're far away or up close. For the widow, the alien, the orphan, the outsider, for the unloved, he's got a plan. said, may I continue to find favor in your eyes. You've put me by, at ease by speaking kindly to your servant. Though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. Here's the part I want to hit on right here. The Bible says later on at a mealtime, once again, Boaz going above and beyond the call of duty. The only command from the Lord was let her take the leftover grain. It's the only command. But he says, I'm going to give you protection. I'm going to give you water. I'm going to give you food. Later on, there's a mealtime prepared. And Boaz tells Ruth, come over here, have some bread. Dip it in the wine, dip the, 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 the wine vinegar. And Ruth sat down. And when she sat down with the harvesters, the other people who were part of Boaz's crew, the other, his workers, he offered her some roasted grain. And she ate all she wanted and she had some leftover. The idea of benevolence, the idea of being magnanimous, pick whatever big or small word you want to pick. We often think these are human ideas. Like we generated them somewhere on a little think tank. Oh, this is who we are. This is what we're going to do. This is purely from the heartbeat of God himself. I, I wasn't going to talk on it because I because I, uh, I, uh, I think um, Kurt uh, is digging into this later, but um, I just have to touch on it because there's really no way to get touched on without uh, talking about this one last part without touching on it. There's an idea that runs throughout the entire book of Ruth. It's said three times. This word is has said. H-E-S-E-D. It's basically this overwhelming kindness. It's this thoughtfulness. It's just like, it's this thing that like, goes above and beyond the call of duty. And, and you see it multiple times in script in this in this book. 
It's quoted a few times, and even when it's not quoted, the idea of it has a ripple effect. You see it in Ruth's relationship to Naomi. You see it in Naomi's relationship to her daughters-in-laws. You see it in Boaz's relationship to Ruth. And most importantly, you see it in the idea that the Lord himself, the Lord himself has orchestrated this whole thing. It just so happened that the woman who had nothing showed up to the man's house that could give her everything. And that one man. And as I was praying through and thinking through all these things, it came up with this one last verse. Romans gave, give me this Romans verse, so we'll end here. So we're gonna close. Or do you despise the riches of kindness, of his kindness, restraint and patience? Man, this is all of us as believers, right? We do some boneheaded, knuckleheaded stuff. We often are really, we, we come across really ungrateful. Maybe I'm just speaking about myself, but I know I'm speaking for myself and probably speaking one or two of us. Don't you realize, don't you recognize that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? The entire story of Ruth a book of the Bible where there's no creative miracles. There's no turning water into wine. There's no feeding of the five thousands and multiplying bread and loaves. There's no parting of seas and people walk through it. There's no fire of pillar that comes and attacks the enemy. It's just godly people living and doing godly things because that's what God told them to do. Pause for dramatic effect. <laughs> Maybe you're here and you don't know who Jesus is. Number one, I would invite you. The God we speak of, the God of Ruth and Boaz and Naomi is a God of kindness and love. He's a real-time God. He will say stuff if you got to say some stuff. I think he's from the East Coast because he just is like, I'm going to keep it real simple, keep it real curt with you. But he's a God of love and kindness. He's a God of truth. He's a God of love and kindness. He can be both. It's okay. The invitation is to say, please know that you have a God who loves you and wants a relationship with you. He has laid it all out for you, for you to come and walk and to engage and participate. Or if you're here and you're a believer, and I would say if you know that, man, kindness is not exactly my forte. That's how I said, this idea that like, I should be a Ruth, I should be a Boaz, I should be someone who goes the extra mile, who sees people the way the Lord sees people. I'm someone who should treat the outsider like an insider. If that's you as your believer, hey, number one, I do believe you should repent. I know I gotta repent when I feel that way, but it's okay. All of us have been there. The Lord just reminds you, you were once a slave. You were once busted, broken, and messed up too. New splash, you still kind of are, but whatever, moving on. <laughs> if you don't know the Lord, I would invite you into his kindness. If you do know the Lord, I would invite you to ask the Lord, Lord, will you show me more of what this kindness of yours look like? I want to be like Ruth. I want to be like Boaz. I want to be like Naomi. I want to be someone who's committed to you and committed to others. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. Lord, you are so good to us. We don't deserve how good you are. We don't deserve it, Lord. And God, you know that. And God, you still say, I'm still going to be good. I'm still going to give. I'm still going to give you more. I'm still going to bless. 
And when I give you, know that there will be leftover. There will be more than enough. More than enough for you to give away. More than enough for you to bless others. That's the God we serve. The God of more. The God of more than enough. The God that makes the insider or the outsider the insider. The God that calls the insider to a greater and higher standard. The God of love, the God of peace, the God of joy, the God of kindness. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, will you stand to your feet? We're going to worship together.